You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. God, we come before you and are grateful for all of the good gifts you've given us. And um, man, near the top of that list is the gift of your word. So thank you, God, as we look at your scriptures and look at two chapters today, chapter 36 and 37 of Genesis. I thank you for these good gifts, and I pray, Lord, that you would, um, you would open up uh, our understanding of what these, uh, why these texts are here and why they mean so much to us. Uh, God, help us to uh, behold your glory and your goodness in your word, and I pray, God, that my friends here would, uh, would hear a better sermon than the one I'm about to preach, and that they would hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we've been working through Genesis, and um, we have two interesting chapters in front of us. Chapter 36, which is a genealogy. It's been a while since we've been through a good old genealogy. And then chapter 37, which is, uh, which is a fascinating story. So the title of our message is Prosperity, Punishment, and Providence. We'll see the prosperity of Esau, and, uh, and just this huge nation that he becomes so quickly. And then the punishment of Joseph unjustly. And, uh, and then the providence of God in all of it. So that's where we're headed this morning. Um, and just by the way, this TV makes no sense because it does not blink until we start worshiping. And we have changed every mechanical thing that we can and it still flashes midway through the service. So I'm not one who necessarily thinks there's demons behind every little thing, but it is super weird. And don't let that distract you. Um, there is something beyond the physical that seems to be uh, that we can't seem to figure out. So anyway, um, and so uh, I don't know if any of you in here uh, are the favorite child of your family. I know that if, it, if you are, you know how difficult that is for us, that are favorites. And, uh, and so we're going to see two favorites here. Esau is the preferred son of Isaac. And then we're going to look at Joseph, and the, he's the preferred son of, uh, of Jacob, ironically. Jacob doesn't learn the lesson from his father and the pain that favoritism can cause uh, because he does the exact same thing, and that plays a factor in Joseph's uh, turmoil that happens in chapter 37. So we're going to look at uh, this gene- genealogy in chapter 36, and uh, I am going to go ahead and read it in all of its glory I'm going to trip over probably every other name. There's, 30, there's 73 of them. But let's read through it. Let's plow through it. And I'll have a few uh, uh, takeaways for us from that. And then we'll spend the bulk of our time in chapter 37. So here we go. Chapter 36. We're looking at the prosperity of Esau. These are the generations of Esau. That is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Oholabama the daughter of Anna, and the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basimath bore Reul, and Aholabama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan, he went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. That's just important to know through the rest of the Bible. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of of Seir, 
These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, Reuel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mezah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs of Teman, Omar, Zepho, and Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, the chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabama, Esau's wife, the chiefs Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born to Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Azer, and Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Himam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya and Anna. These are Anna, he is the Anna who found hot springs in the wilderness, and as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon and Aholabama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdon, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheron. These are the sons of Azer, Bilhan, Zaavan, Ak and Akan. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zimeon, and Anna, Dishon, Azer, and Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. We're almost there. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham, the land of the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the, in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, and the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Shamlah of Masrika reigned in his place. Shamla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place. The name of his city being Pau, his wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, Matred, daughter of Mahazab, Mezahab. There we go. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places. By their names, the chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Aholabama, Elah, Pinion, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, 
Magdiel and Iram, these are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling place in the land of their possession. So there you go. 73 beautiful names. Any of you that are expecting or plan to have children, I would commend to you many of these names. They are wonderful and beautiful. And, uh, and so we have the genealogy of Esau. Now these are significant if you're an Israelite and you're, about to, and you're coming out of the Exodus and you're about to encounter all of these people. So you kind of wonder why is this in the Bible? Well, the Bible isn't just for you. The Bible is for all generations and it's initially written to an original audience. And that original audience would be very interested to know because they're about to pass through Edom on their way to the promised land and they're about to run into all of these characters. So to know where they fit in the family tree is going to be really, really helpful. So you read it and might, have, might kind of glass, glaze over and I didn't read all of those names exactly properly. My Hebrew accent all of a sudden fades about verse 3 and then I just try to hammer my way through it. But this means something. It's here for a reason, and the scriptures uh, uh, are, are God's word. So uh, just a few takeaways before we jump into chapter 37. Here's what you need to know. So Esau, Esau is the brother of Jacob. They wrestled in the womb together, and God said that the promise was going to go through Jacob, not Esau. Jacob is the one who has chosen. Esau is not. But Esau is significant to the story. And here's what we have here is you can kind of see the family tree of the prosperity of Esau. And uh, it's important to know sort of how all of these rulers are going to be, how they're going to play out, how the family tree develops um, over the course of the next 400 years. Uh, what we see now is that we're in our ninth of the ten Toledot. Toledot is the word for the generations of. And it serves as the seams of the book of Genesis. You have these narratives, and in between them, what stitches the narratives together is this phrase, Toledot. The history of God's plan to redeem a broken world is written on the story of human genealogy. When God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that was going to be the paper with which he wrote his story on, was time and human lives. Um, and so these different uh, genealogies stitch together the stories. They help you make it from one to the other. And so we're ending a chapter. We're ending the Jacob, uh, we're ending the Esau chapter here, the Jacob and Esau chapter, and we're about to begin the Joseph chapter. And in chapter 27, I'm sorry, 37, we're going to get the line of Jacob, which is going to focus in on Joseph primarily. Okay, so we're crossing over, we're closing a chapter, and we're entering a new chapter, the final chapter, the 14-chapter finale of the book of Genesis. Um, and so just a few takeaways here. I think I have them on a slide. Just a few takeaways from this genealogy. Number one, you see the word Amalek come up. The Amalekites are going to be a huge problem for Israel in the future. They're going to be a huge problem for Israel. So now we know where they come from. They come from Esau. They come with the disposition of Esau, of, of, of being all about himself, about being against God's people. Number two, this is just an interesting connection, is that there's a, a curious potential connection to Job. You see the word uz or uz in verse 28? Well, Job is from the land of uz. In Job 1.1, these are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aran. The name Eliphaz appears seven times in this chapter, in, verses, in verse 4, in verses 10 through 12, in verses 15 through 16. And Eliphaz is one of Job's counselors. Uh, so potentially, potentially there's some connections there. The word Teman, 
Eliphaz is a Temanite. The word Teman shows up four times, Genesis uh, 36, 11, 15, 34, and 42. And we see that in Job chapter 2, verse 11. Um, and then you have the word Jobab. I heard some people laugh. Who laughed at Jobab? Don't laugh at Jobab. You laughed at Jobab? Some think that that might be just another version of Job's name, perhaps. Is Job an Edomite? So we're not sure, but it's just sort of an inter- interesting co- coincidence. In fact, it's poss- it seems like commentators are maybe thinking that this isn't, but it is a unique uh, overlap that perhaps Job is at the same time as the patriarchs, and that perhaps he is somehow connected with the Edomites, that somehow there is this godly Job that comes out of what would actually not be a very godly line. It's really hard to say, not really sure, just wanted to point it out, thought that might be fun for you to know. All right. And then third, materially prosperous. Uh, Esau is, is materially prosperous and worldly prolific in terms of the number of sons and families and power that he gets, and that's really what he wanted, right? He gets what he wants. He gets material prosperity. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 27, Isaac, his father, answered him, because remember, he wanted a blessing too. Jacob stole the blessing, and so Esau's like, is there still a blessing for me? And here's what uh, Isaac gives him a blessing and says that it will be away from the dwelling of his brother. And uh, and there seems to be, uh, you know, both this prophecy about there being contention with Jacob, but then also that Esau would have a certain amount of prosperity himself, and that's exactly what he gets is he becomes materially prosperous. And what's fascinating is that for, you know, for 400 years, Esau flourishes and Israel is going to be in bondage. And so it's going, to be, it's going to be this weird thing where it seems like Esau's the blessed one physically while Israel is languishing under Egyptian rule for centuries. But in reality, God is doing a different thing. Material prosperity and God's approval are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. And we'll see that a little bit later when we look at the life of Joseph. So uh, just a couple of things there. Let's move to chapter 37. So here we go. We'll walk slowly through it, and I'll make comments as we go through. That's how we roll. Here we go. So we've looked at the prosperity of Esau. It's a material prosperity. It's a physical prosperity. It's a political prosperity, but it is not approved by God. He is not the line of promise. This is all that Esau is going to get. Now we have Joseph, the punishment of Joseph. Chapter 37, verses 1 through 3. 1 and 2. Let's look at 1 and 2 first. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations, Toledot, of Jacob. So this is the final Toledot in the book of Genesis. This is, we're entering the final chapter. And then look who immediately he begins to talk about. Instead of listing a bunch of names like Esau, he starts, These are the generations of Jacob, Joseph being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. It's just so fascinating that this is a genealogy that just all of a sudden just goes, we're going to talk about this son. Way down the line, not even the firstborn, way down the line, Joseph. This is the key character that you need to watch if you're going to understand the legacy of Jacob. The importance of Israel, you're going to have to watch Joseph. Okay, So these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So 17-year-old Joseph, he seems to be the main character now for 14 chapters, which is going to be more than any other character in Genesis. Joseph is going to dominate. There's more about him than Abraham. There's more about him than Isaac or Jacob. Joseph is going to dominate the rest of the book. 
Um, you think of like all that's covered in Genesis 1 through 11, and we have more on Joseph than we do on all of human history up till Abraham. So this is a huge, this is a huge slowdown by Moses to watch one character and watch his conversations. It's going to be really an intimate look at our friend Joseph. Um, so he, uh, unlike his father, uh, Jacob looks like a deceiver, but Joseph, you're going to notice as we go through this story, Joseph looks a lot like Jesus. There's a Jesus-shaped pattern that begins to develop in Joseph that is going to be just really obvious. Watch for that in the text here of things that you're going to be, you're going to see happen in Joseph's life, qualities of Joseph that you're also going to see later in Jesus. So uh, some have looked at this, and Joseph's out in the field, he's with his brothers, and he brings a bad report to them, uh, to his father. Uh, some have taken this to mean that maybe Joseph's a bit of a tattletale. I don't think that's really what's going on here. I think that Joseph is actually put in charge. At 17, he's already the lead brother. And he has such an allegiance to his father that when his brothers are doing things that they're not supposed to, which they have a track record of doing, he reports it. So I think this is actually a demonstration of godly leadership in Joseph, that Joseph is actually holding his brothers accountable to their father, that he's been given a task to be out in the field and to be uh, managing the situation, and then when things aren't going well, he reports it. You'll notice that again and again, that Joseph always finds himself in charge. He always gets put in a worse situation, and then because of his character, because of his integrity, because of his honesty, he ends up in charge. We'll see that. He, we see, I think that's what we see here. We're going to see that, that when he goes to Potiphar's house, he becomes in charge of the whole house before long. He gets thrown in jail, becomes in charge of the jail. And then when he meets Pharaoh, he ends up second in command to Pharaoh. And actually, it seems like Pharaoh's not even doing a lot, that Joseph's actually running the country. So we see something, I think, early on that I don't think this is a critique of Joseph. I think this is actually that Joseph is a man of integrity, unlike his brothers, and he calls them out and holds them accountable. He seems to be the shepherd's supervisor, and his brothers don't really like that. They, no one likes their kid brother saying things about them. Um, and so we see, I think, evidences of his character right out of the gate. Verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. So Jacob, again, falls into the same trap that his father did that caused him so much pain, which is favoritism, favoring one son over another son. And Isaac takes it another step further and actually gives him a coat. Now, the exact nature of this coat, if you look at the Hebrew, it's a little bit ambiguous because this is like the only place that you have this, uh, this described. So this coat of many colors is actually based off an interpretation of the Septuagint. It's more likely that perhaps this is a tunic of, with long sleeves, which means this is not a working man's coat. This is a royal coat. This is the coat of a supervisor, a king, a leader. So it may or may not have been of many colors. It may have been more that it's actually communicating a, 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 a point of leadership, distinction, royalty. Uh, so he is definitely being held up as being the leader among his brothers, the preferred among his brothers, the one that is not expected to do the manual labor as the other, but the one with whom who will give oversight to the others. Uh, one commentator put it this way, a tunic extending all the way down to the wrists and the ankles as opposed to a shorter one. This was not a working man's coat. It was a garment of privilege and status. The man who wore it watched others as they did hard physical labor. Okay? 
Verse 4, And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peaceably to him. So they could not even greet him. They couldn't even say hi. Couldn't even make eye contact with him. Pay attention to that because that's going to come up later. That's going to come up later as a significant thing in the book is that they can't even look him in the eye. They have such disdain for him that they won't even greet him. Well, they're going to have to greet him later in the book, and that's going to be quite a reversal when you see their disposition before Joseph changes quite dramatically by the end of the book. So I think this is a key verse here, that they could not even speak to him. They could not even acknowledge his existence. And so their disdain for Joseph is, uh, is at an all-time high, and it's about to get worse. Verse 5, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he had told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. That's weird. So picture, picture you know, farming. There you go. There's some sheaves there, some sheaves of wheat. They're all down. His is going to stand up. His is going to rise above the others. Mine arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Well, dad's already tipped his hand that he thinks that's going to be the case, right? By giving him the robe. But now he's had a dream to confirm it. And where do dreams come from? Well, you either make them up or they're from God, right? This is, a, this is an offensive thing. Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So now we're moving beyond just I don't want to speak to him, I don't want to see him, to now it's ratcheting up even higher. Then he dreamed another dream. <laughs> it's just getting worse, right? He dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, so it's one thing to have the sheaves bowing, right? It's another thing to have the cosmos bowing down to you, the sun and the moon and the stars, which are representatives of his father and his mother and, and these dreams. So now he's had two dreams in a row, which notice that as we go through the rest of this book, this idea of two dreams, and two dreams being a confirmation. Later on, you're going to have in Jewish law that two witnesses, you cannot, um, you shouldn't consider a charge against anyone unless there's two witnesses. So you're going to have two dreams again and again. Uh, you're going to have two criminals that have two dreams. You're going to have two, you're going to have Pharaoh have two dreams. Here you have Joseph two dreams, which is an idea that this is, this is confirmed. This is going to happen. This is as good as set. One dream, you could kind of write that off as some bad pizza. But two dreams... That's a confirmation. That's a divine message to these guys. And so he gets the second dream, and it's even ramped up. It's even more intense, more dramatic than the first one. Verse 10, when he told it to his father and to his brothers, he rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers e indeed come and bow ourselves down to the ground before you? You're going to be even better, greater than your father? The great Jacob, Israel? The father of the great nation is going to bow down to you. And verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So Jacob, while he's somewhat rebuking his son here and going, this is ridiculous, there is still something that rings true that gets Jacob's attention. He's like, ah, this is weird. I'm going to hang on to this. You see Mary do that same thing when she's treasuring things in her heart about Jesus. As these prophecies are being fulfilled in Jesus, this remarkable child, Mary is treasuring these things in her heart, just stowing them away. And I think that's what Luke then talks about. I think Luke then interviews her and gets all of the Christmas story from Mary personally. Well, here we have Jacob. Here we have Jacob treasuring these things. While he's sort of rebuking his son for being so arrogant, 
And for having these dreams, he's still in his heart of hearts going, maybe there's something to this. So the brothers are, are bowing down in the first dream, and then his parents as well in the second one. And it's a confirmation. The fact that he's had two um, is a confirmation that this is as good as set. This is a prophecy that is going to happen. Now, it's sort of like later on, other people are going to have dreams, and Joseph's going to interpret them. And that's going to be pretty amazing um, that he does that. But what do you do when you're the one having the dream, and then you're also the one interpreting it? Well, you just make people mad, right? <laughs> well, I had a dream. Well, how do we know you had a dream, right? And so this is a tough spot for Joseph. I don't think that he is being braggadocious necessarily. I guess it's possible. But what, do you, what is he supposed to do? If he has a dream that he believes is from God, and he's the one that has this unique ability to interpret him, what's he supposed to do? Is he just supposed to keep that to himself? It's, if it's a message from God, he should say something. So I'm not entirely sure that uh, while Joseph might be unwise in how he's framing this, he gets smarter later on in framing the interpretation of dreams a little bit more palatably. He doesn't do it particularly wise here. But what's he supposed to do? If it's a message from the Lord and he's supposed to share it, then it's not entirely his fault that there's some anger against him, if that makes sense. So I don't think that he's necessarily being braggadocious, although he might be unwise in how he's framing this with his brothers. He's got to know this can't be going well. But this does seem to be a dream from the Lord. We're going to see that going on, that God is now going to interact with his people through dreams for the rest of the book of Genesis. That's how he's going to communicate. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Do you remember Shechem? Remember the bloodshed of Shechem last week? Well, they're pasturing flocks there, which seems to be about 40 miles, perhaps, from where Jacob is at, the point, at this point. So they, they've drifted quite a ways with their flocks. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. You kind of go where the flocks can find. And so they're a good 40 miles away the brothers are. And here's what verse 13. Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Which means that Jacob's not out, or, or Joseph's not out doing the hard man's labor, right? He's, he's his father's uh, right-hand man. He's sort of the assistant manager here while his brothers are out shepherding the flocks. Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with your flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. So that's a long journey for this young man to make. Several days under the direction of his father to go and see about the well-being of his brothers. How are they doing? And then bring me a report back on how they're doing. Probably taking some supplies to them as well. So this is a big ask, and Joseph seems to obey straightforwardly without any issue. Uh, verse 15. A man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? So he gets to Shechem, and he can't find them. Where are they? And a guy approaches him and says, Hey, 17-year-old boy, you're just wandering around. What are you doing? I'm looking for my brothers, and they're like, Oh, I know where they are. They're in Dothan. I am seeking my brothers, he said. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan, which is probably another 10, 12 miles away. So this has been a long journey for Joseph. And uh, you remember the treachery at Shechem. And so there's probably, this is probably not a, the safest place to travel if you've just obliterated a bunch of people in that area, your family has, and you're wandering through. 
Uh, so Joseph's on a somewhat dangerous mission. He's got a long travel. He's not exactly sure where he is, and he needs some help to find his brothers, but ultimately he does find his brothers at Dothan. Verse 18. Now they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So here he's coming. You know, he's coming on the hills. You can kind of see him coming, and they go, we want him dead. We want him dead now. That's the consensus among the brothers. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. So they actually think that it might be true, right? You don't kill him if you aren't afraid that the dreams might be true. But we're going to kill him in the hopes that these dreams don't become true, right? So I think there's, they're tipping their hand a little bit that they fear these dreams. But when Reuben heard it, who's the oldest, he's the one sort of in charge as the firstborn. He would be the one who would, who would have the responsibility in his hands. When Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. So this dream seems to have stuck. They think it might be true, and, uh, and they want to end this once and for all. And, and so Reuben stops them. Um, Reuben probably believes them. I mean, Simeon and Levi have already shown that they swing the sword quite well, that they're not afraid to take life. And so now there's a whole coalition. There's all of these brothers want to kill him. And so Reuben steps up, and Reuben tells them, no, we're not going to do the kill thing. Verse 22, And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not land a, lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of the hand to restore him to his father. Uh, so we get a little bit of an interpretation there, that Reuben is like, let's put him in the pit, Let's just make him think about what he's done a little bit. But Reuben intends to come back maybe when they're distracted and rescue his brother. Um, so Reuben seems to leave then at this point. Verse 23, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and he took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty because there was no water in it. So now Joseph is in the ground. He's as good as dead. Reuben insists that there should be no violence. Reuben tries to buy some time and then apparently goes away for this next part because he's going to come back and find that they've sold him. They stripped Joseph of his tunic. They ripped it off of him, the tunic of many colors that was upon him. With cruel pleasure, they bullied Joseph. They ripped from him the sign of his father's favor, the color of many, the coat of many colors, this tunic being torn from him. And Joseph is in the equivalent of a grave. He's in the equivalent of a grave. We're going to find out later when these brothers are reflecting on this, Listen to Genesis 42, 21. They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Which tells us a little bit about what happens here. Is that Joseph is begging for his life in this pit, and his brothers have no compassion on him whatsoever. Look at what they do in verse 25. They sat down to eat. So they're eating while their brother, whom they've likely beaten up, who's probably bloodied and broken, battered, down in this pit, hungry for who knows how long, and they just happily go about their day. They sat down to eat. And this is going to bother their conscience because they're going to they're realize later on that they did not listen to their bro brother in the distress of his soul, and now God is bringing this punishment upon them. Look at the verse of rest of verse 25. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. 
with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh. Probably juicy fruit, bigly chew, probably. Maybe lip balm. What was that? Yeah. And myrrh, I don't know. Myrrh. And on their way to carry it down to Egypt. So these are traders. They're trading with Egypt. Verse 26, Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. How kind of Judah, right? Let's at least make a buck. Reuben's not going to let us kill him. Okay, We might as well sell him, because he is our brother after all. Right? So Judah sees an opportunity to make a profit here and goes, let's sell him as a slave to these Ishmaelites. Do you remember the Ishmaelites? Ishmaelites are Abraham's other son from Isaac, right? So now they've come back into the story. You know, they play a part in this plan. Um, and so it's fascinating. Verse 28, the Midianite traders pass by. So you see the Midianites and the Ishmaelites are sort of one and the same. They've almost certainly intermarried with each other. So that's why I think here in the text you see them used interchangeably. The Ishmaelites and the Midianites are, are an intermarried group. They're sort of one and the same, at least for our purposes here. Then Midianite traders... Oh, just for the record, Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 24 are going to prohibit this exact event. Uh, this prohibition of man-stealing, kidnapping someone, and then selling them into slavery. And I think it probably has this Joseph narrative in mind. This is going to be a law. They're breaking a law. It's not a law yet, but they know what they're doing is wrong, and it will become uh, law later. Verse 28, Then the Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Reuben knows that he's in charge. He's the one that's going to have to answer to his father or why his favored son is gone. So Reuben uh, realizes that he is in big trouble. Notice that 20 sec in Leviticus chapter 27, verse 5, if a person is from five years old up to 20 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 20 shekels. <laughs> so Joseph becomes the standard slavery price later on, right? So that's sort of fascinating here uh, that, uh, that this uh, event plays a role in some of the laws that's going to come in Israel um, later, in Israel's codified law. Verse 31, Then they took Joseph's robes, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Can you just imagine? they got to try to keep a straight face. they got to try to look sad here of what they've done. They've come back to their father. They've had 57 miles or whatever of travel, of going back, knowing that they're about to break their father's heart for 20 shekels of silver. They do not care. Reuben is the only one who shows any sort of regret on this at all. They sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. How callous. Is this your, is this your son's? Not our brother. Is this your son's? And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning 
Thus his father wept for him. Just imagine, all his sons and daughters are comforting him. Well, his sons are the ones that got rid of him. They're the ones facilitating this lie. And it's so ironic that Jacob, he once deceived his father with a slain goat and his brother's coat. Right? Putting the goat skins on his arm, putting his brother's clothing on him. He deceived his own father with goats, with a dead goat and his, and his brother's coat. Now, this poetic justice of him being deceived by his sons from a dead goat and his son's coat. Like father, like son, we have this same thing happening again, this poetic justice that's coming back that now Jacob is the one who's been deceived by his boys in the almost exact same way, slightly different than he deceived his own fathers. Then verse 36, we get this little tag. We get this little tag that's going to not be picked back up until chapter 39 um, because there's going to be a special story in chapter 38, which will be uh, bad, gross and weird. So just get ready. we got one more of those to go. But look at verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So that's where Joseph ends up. Beaten, battered. Now he's in slavery. The favored son. The one, the dreamer. The one whom all of the hope seems to rest is now forgotten, lost, as good as dead in Egypt. And we get this to be continued. We'll get a little bit about Judah in chapter 38, and then we'll come back to Potiphar's house in chapter 39, where it just seems to get worse and worse for Joseph. So, so you've, got, you've got Esau, who's someone who has no heart for God in chapter 36, but seems to be as prosperous as anything. And then you have Joseph, who seems to be, have genuine integrity, seems to genuinely love his father, seems to genuinely do the right thing, and it just gets worse and worse and worse for him. Now, his father doesn't make it easy on him by playing favorites, but Joseph is really seen as a man of integrity throughout this, and it just keeps getting worse and worse. And so just a few applications. One is this. These two chapters totally destroy the idea of the prosperity gospel. The idea that God's favor is tied to material blessings. Because if you go by that calculation, God must really hate Joseph and must really hate Israel and must really love Esau. Because Esau, things are going to go swimmingly for him for hundreds of years. And it just gets worse and worse and worse for Joseph. So this idea that positive circumstances are evidence of God's approval, the book of Job, which we just talked about a moment ago, goes totally against that. To be godly is actually to sometimes endure more suffering. Jesus talked about taking up your cross and following him, not taking up your Lamborghini, right? Esau is rejected by God, yet materially prosperous. Esau, his prosperity does not mean that he has approval of God. Joseph seems to be godly in every way, and every time he tries to go and do something, it just gets worse. It just gets worse, and it's going to keep getting worse. He's going to be a man of integrity with Potiphar's wife, and it's going to land him in jail. If he'd have just succumbed, he maybe would have been able to find a way out of this. It just gets worse and worse the more that Joseph clings to his integrity, and yet God is doing something. So we should be careful with our language of blessed, right? I got a raise, I'm blessed. Well, praise God for that, but that's not necessarily a sign that you have God's favor more than someone else, right? We have a tendency to believe a soft prosperity gospel all the time, 
And I would just encourage you to look, is there one godly person in the Bible who had an easy life? If you can point one out to me, I would love to see it. Name one person who is godly in the Bible who had an easy life. Noah? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Paul, Daniel, Job. Can you name one where walking with God meant that things went your way? You can't find one. You can't think of one. And so I think these two chapters show us that, man, we, that is not an equal one for one. Praise God for his blessing and his gifts. I'm not trying to take that away or downplay it, but it's not necessarily a sign of God's favor. James 1 tells us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials of many kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So adversity, pain, difficulty, suffering is the way of Jesus. So we should actually maybe be a little bit more suspect when things are going our way than when they aren't, right? Because just the biblical pattern. So what we'll find here is that it's better to be in bondage with the promise than it is to have prosperity under damnation. And that's what we have with Joseph and Esau. Esau is materially prosperous, but he is rejected by God. Joseph is accepted by God, but it's going to end up in prison and poverty, losing everything that he knows and loves. And yet, God's working a plan. Which is application number two. Notice the providential hand of God in every event. Now, here's what's fascinating. God is not mentioned at all by name or by title in chapters 35 or 34, 36 and 37. He's not mentioned at all in Esau's line, not one time. He's also not mentioned at all in chapter 37. You notice that? This whole episode with Joseph, God's not mentioned at all, but he's working. He's working. There's only three chapters in all of Genesis where God is not referenced or named at all. Chapter 34, the Dinah massacre. Chapter 36, with Esau's lineage. And then here in chapter 37, with the Joseph thing. Although I think the Joseph thing's different. I think it's more like Esther. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Yet you see these coincidences happening again and again that shows that God is rescuing his people through ordinary circumstances of life. God has the power to show up with angels and do big miraculous things. We've seen that throughout the book. But God also ordinarily loves to work through the ordinary coincidences of life. That he's doing all of these little tiny things working behind the scenes in ways to orchestrate human events for his purposes. And we see that here in the book. We see that in, uh, in Esther, in the book of Esther, all these coincidences that are God's fingerprints protecting and delivering his people. I think we see it in Joseph. I think we see it in Joseph. Like, just, it's just amazing. Like, what are the odds, just, just, that, you know, he's wandering around in the middle of Shechem looking for his brothers, and a guy happens to go find him and pick him out. The whole plan of God to bring Christ into the world to save sinners like you and me hinges on that guy being there and taking the initiative to go find Joseph. Because if he doesn't find Joseph, and Joseph doesn't find his brothers and goes home, he doesn't get sold into Egypt. If he doesn't get sold into Egypt, then when a famine hits, there's no one to rescue the people of Israel. The people of Israel then die in famine, and then all of a sudden the plan of God stops. There's no Christ, there's no preaching the gospel to the nations, and there's no salvation for you and me, and redeeming grace never existed. The way to heaven is closed if there isn't a guy wandering around in Shechem telling Joseph his brothers are over there. 
There are no coincidences in the world. God is working out all of the details, and I think this chapter shows that. That even a man wandering around to say, hey, your brothers went that way, is used of God to get Joseph to his angry brothers, who then want to kill him, but then providentially, Reuben, trying to save his own skin, goes, let's just throw him in a pit. Then providentially, Judah, in his greed, decides let's sell him. Then he ends up in Potiphar's house, and then he's going to end up being ruler of, of, of Egypt, and then ultimately saving his brothers and therefore the plan of God. There are no accidents. Even the painful ones, even the broken ones, even the terrible ones, are God working out every detail of his plan. And then lastly, there's some Christ-like patterns that are being presented in Joseph. Some commentators have looked at these 14 chapters and found over 100 ways that Joseph parallels Jesus. Let's just look at just a few. We won't get to go through 100, but let's just look at a few that are here in the text. First, Joseph is the rejected godly brother who is sent to save and reconcile the covenant family. We're going to see that later on. That's the big picture. There's striking parallels. Joseph is the beloved of his father. He is sent to his brothers by the father. He was sold for pieces of silver by a man named Judah or Judas, same name. Sold into bondage, betrayed for some silver. 20 pieces of silver in Joseph's case, 30 pieces of silver in Jesus' case. Same name, same guy. Well, not same guy, but same name. After suffering persecution and temptation, righteous Joseph will be exalted as Lord over his brothers later in the book. We see that he is stripped of everything, that he's as good as dead in a pit, that he is brought out of that pit, that his father renders him as good as dead. And he will later come back as if resurrected from the dead. You see some pictures of Jesus in the Jew Joseph story. So we have a challenge to the prosperity gospel here. We see God's providential hand in all things. And we see a Christ-like pattern being presented in Joseph. That Joseph himself is a prototype, is a, 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 uh, a hint to the ultimate rescuer who will rescue his brothers from sin, who will rescue, who will be the forgiver, the reconciler, the provider uh, for his brothers. And we'll see that continue to play out as we see Joseph's godliness continue to be uh, both challenged, it, gets, it makes things worse and worse, and yet it's going to be used by God's glory to bring about salvation and deliverance. And ultimately, we're to look at this story and we're to look beyond it to Jesus, the one whom is the fulfillment of these things, the true brother. The true brother that has the robe of, of, of righteousness torn from him by his brothers. The one who is, who, is, um, who is crucified for us, who is dead, who rises again, that we might be delivered from our sins. And so let's pray. God, thank you for this uh, section of Scripture, chapters 36 and 37. God, thank you for the lessons that they teach us. And as we jump into the story of Joseph, I pray that we would just marvel at your hand in working out all of these situations, working out all of these things, what looks like a loss in a physical sense, what looks like a tragedy from a worldly perspective is actually just a setup for greater victory, greater salvation, greater glory. And we thank you how that points to Christ, the murder of the Son of God, the most horrific thing in all of history becomes the greatest moment as, we are, um, as our sins are forgiven and, uh, and Jesus rises again to save us. And so, Lord, I pray that ultimately we look to him in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.